All right, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of the Zest for Life podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Todd Spencer, and this week we're going to be exploring the change process and how does somebody actually create meaningful and sustainable change in their life. I want to start this week's episode by asking you a really important question. What is the worst advice you have been given on how to improve your life? One activity I'll do in class with my students as a professor is I'll ask them that question and then just Google advice on how to change or look up motivational videos on YouTube. And let's make a list of all the terrible advice that people are receiving about what it means to be human. How do they change? What should they change? Should they not change at all? And overall, you're stuck with a lot of people seeking something more in their life, but not knowing how do I create the life and the relationship with myself that I would like to. Oftentimes, the motivational speakers today come across as, hey, if you want this change in your life, you got to want it more than you want to sleep, more than you want to breathe, more than you want to eat. And there's this sense of desperation and fear. And with my research and clinical work, I've come to learn that fear-based motivation does not create sustainable change. Also, there are more optimal states that someone can be in if they're really looking for change that is more permanent. And one sentiment that I do appreciate from the, hey, if you want to change, you got to want this more than you want to sleep or breathe, is change does require sacrifice. But not necessarily by sacrificing your basic human rights. It's going to require more intentionality. And that can be really hard because so often in our life, when we get stressed and busy, we start autopiloting things. As a way to cope and survive, we just kind of go through the motions. And your goals for yourself aren't going to happen by accident. Right? So there's some need to realize, okay, I'm going to be inconvenienced by turning the autopilot off and start engaging what is called executive functioning. Executive functioning is simply the term that describes our self-regulation skills, our ability to say no to the wrong things and yes to the right things. It does involve some delayed gratification and some intentional effort. One of the biggest dilemmas I've encountered as I've worked with people who are wanting to change is trying to find the balance between this tension of there's improvements I want to make in my life as well as I want to practice self-acceptance. I want to experience love and joy now. And so how do I sort of navigate being okay with who I am with also saying, but there's more for me? Before we explore the science of change, would like to share a quick quote from the American psychologist Carl Rogers. Carl Rogers was sort of at the height of his career in the 1950s, and he was a leading figure in what's called the humanistic branch of therapy or person-centered therapy, where we're sort of moving away from, hey, come to my office, awkwardly lay on my couch, and let me psychoanalyze your dreams, and more of, wait a minute, what if we can connect person to person first? And this is what Carl has to say on the change process. He says, The curious paradox is that when I accept myself just as I am, then I can change. Think about that. The curious paradox is that when I accept myself just as I am, then I can change. 
this quote is absolutely electric to me. And it resonates with me because I have countless experiences where someone comes to my office seeking change, but they do so from a point of rejection. Meaning because they want to improve their life, they assume they must reject themselves to get it. And that's where some of the fear-based motivation comes in, where it's, if I don't change, I'm afraid of this. In fact, the most common response I get from people when I ask them what they want, they will tell me all the things they don't want. They'll say, I don't want to fight about finances with my partner. I don't want to feel stress with my in-laws. I don't want to have challenges with you know, people at work. And the fascinating part about all of this is basing your life on what you don't want isn't enough to get you what you do want. Because the reality is this, friends. If you base your decision-making on what you're trying to avoid, that doesn't necessarily give you a vision of what you're trying to create or what is possible for you. So to reiterate, the curious paradox is that when I accept myself just as I am, then I can change. So with this attitude of self-acceptance, let's talk about how do we actually change. One of the most influential models of change within the scientific community is called the trans-theoretical model of change, or commonly referred to as stages of change. This was developed by Prochaska and Clemente in 1977, and they initially were interested in understanding why do some people quit smoking and others don't. While there's been several iterations of the stages of change, I'm going to talk specifically about the six-stage model. Specifically, the six stages are pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, maintenance, and relapse. The first stage is called pre-contemplation, and this is when people aren't aware that they yet have a problem or they're not ready to change. All right, so at this stage, people aren't necessarily thinking about taking action. And this can be frustrating because people around them can say, hey, there's a change we would like you to make, but they themselves really aren't all that aware of the problem. And if they are, they aren't super motivated or interested in changing just yet. And we see this all the time with couples, right? Where a couple will come to therapy and one partner is like, hey, I'm ready to make changes and you know improve this relationship. And the other partner's like, what changes? I, I'm learning about this for the first time here. The second stage is called contemplation, and this is when individuals are getting ready to make a change. They're now aware that there's something they would like to change, but it doesn't mean they're ready to act yet. And it's important that we don't rush the stage. And I know this goes against, you know, Jedi Master Yoda from Star Wars, you know, famous do or do not do, there is no try philosophy. And there's some value in that thought, but when it comes to like a sustained effort, engaging that executive function we talked about, it's really important that people spend enough time in contemplation where they are getting ready to make the change. Now, obviously, just thinking about the changes you would like to make or the pros and cons of changing doesn't actually mean things have changed. And some people stop there, right? So they, they're now aware of a problem, but they're not in a position where they are ready to take action, right? But the next stage is preparation. And this is when people are ready and they do start laying sort of the foundation and groundwork to be able to sustain an effort. Okay, so after contemplation is preparation and after preparation is now action. 
And this is when people actually start engaging in intentional effort, utilizing those executive functioning skills to engage in some meaningful changes in their life. People don't reach an action stage of change by accident, meaning there have been some important sort of work that goes before it. And so one of my frustrations sometimes is when people are trying to give advice on to change, they say, just jump to action without thinking about what additional changes would need to enter their life for them to sustain the desired behavior change. So that's why the other stages are really, really important. After action comes maintenance. So in the maintenance stage of change, this is where the individual has incorporated a lot of the changes they would like in their life, and now they're trying to make it more of just this is the way they do things. It's their new default. And the truest measure of change is always going to be time. And so the maintenance stage is really investing in that time of this is now the way I approach this certain aspect of my life. Now, the last stage of change might surprise you. The last stage is actually relapse, which means as someone's trying to maintain a new desired behavior, even if it's adding value to their life, there's going to be times when there's a slip up, there's a mistake, and they can't perfectly do and implement the, desi the new desired behavior. And that's okay, right? A part of recovery is relapse. And as you potentially relapse in resorting back to old ways of doing things, or you've returned back to the behavior you've worked so hard to modify, that's okay. You just work the stages of change again. So as soon as you relapse, you try to get back to contemplation as quickly as you can, where you're aware of, okay, this is a problem again. And so you get ready through contemplation, then you get ready through preparation, and then you take action, right? And now you have learned and gained more feedback on how to sustain this behavior in your life, and you keep trying. And there's a beautiful concept called the upward spiral, that in this idea of the stages of change, that as you continue to work this process, relapses become less frequent, and when they do relapse, they don't relapse as long. And so think back about the quote by Carl Rogers about accepting ourselves, then being able to change. When it comes to stages of change, that is still true. That as someone engages in this process, and they do so with the spirit and attitude of, hey, I'm creating change in my life because I'm worthy of change, they tend to do better through the process versus I'm changing because if I don't, then there's dire consequences. And it doesn't mean to ignore the consequences of your current choices. But again, recognizing that self-acceptance is really a crucial part of that experience. One more quote by Carl Rogers. He says, The good life is a process, not a state of being. It is a direction, not a destination. And with the stages of change, it really is a process. Meaning, the growth comes from doing it. It's not about like arriving anywhere. It really is about the change and the strength and the growth comes through, again, that sustained intentional effort to do the things that you believe will add value to your life. The next thing I would add about how do people really change and sort of our own intrapersonal development is the idea of arrival fallacy. And the term arrival fallacy was coined by Tal Ben-Shahar. You might remember him from episode one when we talked about his spire model for happiness. The idea with the rival fallacy 
is that sometimes we have this belief that once I reach a certain goal, then I will be happy, or that I'll wait to be happy until I've reached a new state in life. This often looks like, once I get the dream job, then I'll be happy, or once I graduate, then I can start living, or once I get into a relationship, then I'll feel loved. And the fallacy with each of these ideas is that we're counting on this new event to make us happy in ways that we weren't before. Now, would getting an education, would getting the dream job, would getting the dream house, would those things add value to your life? I would hope so. But the secret is, if you were not happy during the journey and the process, once you actually get there, you will find yourself just as unhappy. We began today's episode by exploring some of the bad advice people have been given when it comes to self-improvement. I would like to offer at this time some things and tools that I think are practical that are helpful to sort of both honor, you know, the stage of change process as well as avoiding a rival fantasy. And that is an activity that I often use with clients and students to help them understand what it is they value, what they're trying to create in their life, and how to really develop as a person. The exercise is called a living life statement. And what this is, you're going to create a document where you're able to outline some important values that you have that you're able to refer to that gives you power. I first learned this exercise from Dr. Robert Quinn from the University of Michigan, and I have modified it in areas that I have found to be helpful for the people I work with. The first step to creating a living life statement is simply to answer the question, who am I? And the way I recommend doing this is to set a 10-minute timer and just free write. Meaning, just get as many ideas out as you can. And during this stage, you're not editing what you're writing. You're not even questioning or challenging if what you're writing feels accurate. You're just kind of exploring the question of who you are. And the second step is you're going to then look at what you wrote and you're going to identify What is it that I value? And the purpose of this is to say, now that you've kind of explored who you are, what are the themes that emerge of of like, what are your values? Sometimes people start trying to make goals and decisions in their life without even understanding who they believe they are and what it is they value. Right? So the first step, identify who you are. The second step, identify the themes that you value. The third step is going to be within those values. What do you believe is your individual purpose? And that sounds kind of like big and grandiose, and I suppose it is. But the reality is a purpose-driven life is a life in which you're able to add value to those around you. And you live in a sense of abundance rather than scarcity and fear. You're now ready for the final step of this exercise. Okay, so just to recap, you've already explored who you are. You've examined what you value, how those values shape your purpose, And now you're going to create a single statement, a word, a phrase, a mantra, something that captures the entirety of what you've written in a single word or sentence. And how you use this living life statement is that when you find yourself in a dilemma or you're forced to make a difficult choice or it's hard to sort of continue on, you're able to reflect on, well, what is my life statement? And as you use that, it becomes an anchor, right? That you recognize my choices take me closer to living congruently within my life statement, or it's going to take me further away. 
the beautiful thing about this process is it's not a one-time thing. You can go through this exercise over and over and over again throughout your life. And it's interesting to see what aspects of your life statement will change based on your current life circumstances. And also, but there'll be things that are going to be consistent irregardless of where you are sort of in the lifespan. So just one more recap. To identify your living life statement, spend time examining your perception of who you are. Once you get a grounding of that, examine what it is that you value. And it's not just what you think you should value or that others think you should value, but really what is it that you really, really value? The third step is, after identifying my values, what is my purpose? So often people try to identify their purpose in life without understanding their values. And with understanding that your purpose, then create your life statement that gives you power. And this life statement is crucial in helping you find the balance between the tension of wanting to change and improve and accepting yourself as you currently are. Anyways, that's this week's episode. Uh, Please join us next time as we start exploring relationships and the role of relationships within overall well-being and happiness. 